Well, it's good to have you here. Um, I'm going to pray for us. I'll just tell you right now, we are a little bit behind the gun here. We are, uh, we've gone way over time already. <laughs> um, but you guys were singing so well, so, right? It's been a great time of worship this morning. Um, and we have a lot to cover in the sermon. So I'm going to pray for us and just pray for... Um, yeah, I won't pray that I can talk fast because I can already do that, but for our comprehension. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you so much for bringing us here this morning, and I thank you for the worship that has come from the hearts of your children. And I pray that you are pleased uh, at, our, um, at our desire to glorify you this morning. And now I pray for you, uh, I pray for us as we look into your word and we talk about you and who you are and what you're like. Uh, may you give us comprehension. May your spirit deliver your word to our heart. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So uh, first of all, I just want to mention, uh, your notes are long. I know that. One of the things we're doing in this series is I'm, uh, I'm attempting to give you maybe a little more information than we typically would because I, I don't know, I'm, th- I'm hoping maybe you'll go home and think about some of this and uh, pray through some of this and you'll want some of these references. So we're giving you more information in the notes than we typically do. Uh, don't let that make you... Well, too nervous. Uh, We are making our way through the Apostles' Creed. So we've talked about that this is a document that was written by the early church. First uh, versions were probably around 180 AD. Really the first creed that we have outside of the Bible. It's brief. It takes a a million words of the Bible and it really just kind of boils it down to about 111 words. Its primary use was for new believers who wanted to be baptized. And so the church would want to make sure that people knew what it was that they were getting into and believing. And so they would memorize the Apostles' Creed and they would be taught the creed line by line. And it was used to prepare people for baptism. Uh, we, we've had people recently here saying, hey, you know, why don't we do that? I don't know. Maybe we should. Uh, it was used to teach truth and, and correct error. So as people would, would learn the creed, uh, they would be taught about what the truth of, words, uh, of God's word is. They would be taught about error. And it was basically used to grow God's people in the word of God. So they would know who God is and what God is like. And so this is the creed. And we said that uh, reciting the creed in 180 AD and, and 500 AD, whenever it was, was often really an act of rebellion on the part of Christians against the culture, against the philosophy of the day. And certainly uh, that is still true today. When we recite the creed, we are pushing back on so much of what our culture is saying. So why don't we be radicals and do that together? We're going we're to go through the creed. And one of the things we're asking you to do is consider... Um, memorizing the creed as we go through it. And we're just, uh, this week, we're only going to make it through here. So if you just memorize this, you're already right on track, all right? So let's, let's do this together. And I know if you're like me, I memorized it years ago. I mentioned accidentally in a slightly different version, and I'm still trying to overcome that. But let's, let's try to do it together. And you can not look at the screen or look at the screen. I loved it last week because some of you were like, this, you know, like just so I knew you weren't looking at the screen. It's awfully cool. So let's do this together. Ready? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven 
and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Third stanza, here we go. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Now, the Apostles' Creed doesn't merely state, I believe in God, as we talked about last week. It actually describes the God that we say that we believe in. And this is, this is why it's so important. Now, I'll just give you an illustration, and it's a silly illustration, I know. Um, but maybe it makes a point. So imagine that you have a friend. And, and this has been somebody that you care about deeply for years and years and years. And, and one day she comes up to you and she tells you that she has met a man. And that she thinks she, she's in, she loves this man and he loves her and you're so excited for her. And so every time you see her, you know, you say, hey, how's it going? She says, good, it's, it's going really well. And then one day she runs up to you and she says to you, um, guess what? We're getting married. Like we're in love and we're getting married. And you're so excited for this friend of yours and you say, hey, let's, let's go out and have lunch and let's talk. I want to hear all about this. And so you sit down and you have a lunch and you begin to ask her like, so, so tell me what's he like and, and tell me about his family and tell me where he's from and what are his aspirations and what is his faith like and I want to know all about him. And then imagine that she says to you, well, I don't know about any of that stuff. I don't want to know about him. I just want to know him. Right? That makes no sense. We understand that that is impossible. And yet, for some of us, that's how we approach God. We, we don't really want to know about him. We just want to know him. I don't really want to dig down into theology and the deep things of God and wrestle with the Trinity and sovereignty and free will and all that kind of stuff. I just want to know him. I just want to know his name and say, Jesus, Lord, and go to heaven, come to church every now and then, sing a few songs I like. But I don't really want to know about him. So when we talk about knowing God, a word we often use is the word theology. The word theology comes from two Greek words, theos and, and logos. Uh, theos being God and logos being reasoning. So it's reasoning about God. It's, it's theology. It basically, it's, it's a study of God's self-disclosure. So when you read the Bible, you understand that primarily the Bible is not about you. The Bible is about God. The Bible's God's self-revelation so that we know what God is really like. Start in Genesis 1, go all the way through Revelation, and all of it reveals to us who God is, right? This God that we say we know, but what do we know about him? That's why we have the Bible, the self-disclosure of God. This is important because many people have what we might call false views of God, and these false views of God can be very dangerous for us. Sometimes I meet people and when they describe God to me, it sounds more like God's a policeman. He's, he's hiding, you know, around the corner uh, just waiting for you to come by speeding because he wants to write you a ticket or, or maybe he's just an angry judge. He's mad all the time and, and, and he just can't wait to condemn you for your sin. Some people think God's like a doting, forgetful grandfather. He just, you know, gives his children ice cream all the time or, or maybe, you know, he's a life coach. So you can have your best life now. Like God, he just exists to give you everything you want and, and for your self-actualization. Some people say a God is like a clockmaker. We call those deists. People who believe that God just created the universe and all the laws of the universe wound it up and let it go. And you're just going to see how this experiment goes. But he's, he's uninvolved. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. And I believe he's right. So today we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about God the Father Almighty. So not just God, 
But what does it mean when it says God is our Father and Almighty? And here's going to be our big idea, and maybe you've heard this before. It's a popular saying, but it's this. Our God is an infinitely powerful, yet intensely personal Father. So let's think about both of those things together. Our God is infinitely powerful, that's Almighty, and yet an intensely personal Father. So let's start by talking about the second part. Let's talk about God as being infinitely powerful. Now, in the Apostles' Creed, it uses a word, a single word, the word almighty, to describe this aspect of God. Uh, what we could say is this. The word almighty is meant to represent or be an umbrella over all of God's attributes. So for some of you, this will be familiar, and for some of you, this will be new. When we talk about the attributes of God, what we are saying is, um, what words are there, what categories are there to describe what God is like? And so this is where theology is helpful because it can take huge ideas of scripture and boil it down to, to just a word. And that helps us as we, as we think about God. So when it says that God is almighty, let's talk about what it means. Actually, first, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. What doesn't it mean when it says that God is almighty? So here's another word, if you've thought about this. There's the word omnipotence. Um, that means all-powerful. So a lot of times when we think about God being almighty, we think also about be God being all-powerful. We can use those words interchangeably. So here's what almighty or omnipotence doesn't mean. It doesn't mean God can do anything. So a lot of people say, oh, well, God is omnipotent. God is sovereign. God is almighty. God can do anything. God cannot do anything. Uh, for instance, there's a little tricky question people ask you sometimes, right? Don't fall for it. They'll say this. If God can do anything, can he make a rock so big that he can't lift it? All right, so that's supposed to be a trick question, and you're like, oh, well, let's see, I don't know. Uh, if I answer yes, they'll say, well, he's not all-powerful. And if I answer no, well, they'll say he's, he, he's not all-powerful. Here, so here's the thing. Let's talk about what omnipotence or, or almighty doesn't mean, okay? It doesn't mean God can do anything, uh, here's some things God cannot do. God cannot die. He just simply cannot die. He is eternal. He's never had a beginning. He's never had an end. He doesn't have to try to be eternal. It's what he is. God cannot sin. Uh, God cannot be imperfect. The Bible says God is holy. And so he can never sin. That's something God can't do. God can't change. The word we use there is immutable. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, he cannot change. Mutation is the other word, right? A mutation is a change from one thing to the next. God is immutable. He doesn't change. God cannot lie because God is truth. There is no lie in him. He can't lie because he's truth. He cannot be unloving because he is love. He isn't just good at love. He is love. It's, it's what he is. At the same time, he cannot be unjust because he is always just in everything that he does. So omnipotence and almighty doesn't mean God can do anything. So let's talk about what, what does it mean? Well, it means this. God is able to do everything he intends to do. So everything that God intends to do, everything that is in keeping with the nature and the character of God, God can do, and as theologians like to say, and nothing can frustrate his will. Nothing can stop God from doing what he decides to do. Here's another way of thinking about it, and we'll progressively this morning get you to the point where there's smoke coming out of your ears. But here's one thing to think about. Omnipotence does not describe God's nature so much as his relationship to his creation. So that, that takes some thinking there, and I probably didn't put it in your notes, and I probably should have, but omnipotence does not describe God's nature so much as his relationship to his creation. 
Now, a lot of times we take the attributes of God, the characteristics of God, and we put them in two different categories. One category is what we call incommunicable, and the other is communicable. I know it makes it sound like God's a disease, but it's, we have the communicable attributes of God. Those would be things that, to a certain degree, are reflected in you, communicable. You can see them in you. So, for instance, uh, as being one who is created in the image of God, um, God is love, and you also have love in you. That, now, not perfect, not, not like God, but to a certain degree, some of you more, some of you less, it's one of the ways that the image of God has been imprinted upon you. God is wisdom, and, and some of you are wise, uh, right? So you have that attribute of God there. Uh, God is just, and, and we all have a certain amount of just in us. Um, so those are the communicable, and we're not going to talk about those this morning. I want to talk about the incommunicable, and those are attributes that are unique to God and in no way, shape, or form are a part of us. They are completely other. In your notes, I've given you some of the incommunicable attributes, not all of them, but these are important because all of these, I would say, fit under the category of Almighty. So I'm giving you these, um, not because there's going to be a test, but because um, I want you to understand when you hear the word Almighty, what does that mean? So first of all, and in not any particular order, we could say God is eternal. That's part of what it means, right? God is not created. Uh, by such we mean that he is not subject to the limitations of time. He doesn't grow old. He never had a beginning. Remember last week we talked about the fact that, that something doesn't have a beginning. It can be matter or whatever. We'll talk a lot more about that next week when we talk about um, creator of heaven and earth. But he is not subject to the limitations of time. He has no beginning. He has no end. It blows the mind. God is omniscient. That is all-knowing. All science, literally, is what it means. He possesses all knowledge. Think about this. All knowledge in every moment. So he knows everything, and he always has known everything, and he never knows any more uh, than he ever knew. He knows everything that has ever been, everything that is, everything that will be, everything that could be in a parallel universe. It's like, you know, a, a Marvel movie or something, right? He, he knows the, uh, the different timelines, if, if such a thing could exist. He knows all that. He's all-knowing. He's uh, omnipotent. That is, he's all powerful. He can do all things consistent with his perfect nature. So again, it's not that he can do anything. He, can, he cannot sin, but he can do everything that is consistent with his perfect nature. In Psalm 135, 6, it says this, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all deeps. In Ephesians 1.11, it ties it in a little bit more with you and me, and it brings up some topics that are interesting. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been, and here's some great words, having been predestined. So there's an interesting word people get all worked up about. God, is, God has ordained some things that will happen, right? According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We could spend our whole time there, we won't, but the idea is this. God has things that God is going to do, and nothing's going to stop God from doing what he's going to do, again, as theologians would say, nothing can frustrate his will. God can only work all things together for good because he has control over every variable in the equation. He's omnipotent. He is omnipresent. That is, he is everywhere. He is all present. Now, we should not confuse this with pantheism. Pantheism teaches us that God, that everything is God. And God is in everything. He's in that speaker. He's in the carpet. You know, he's in you. He's in me. That's pantheism. That is not what Christianity teaches. It teaches that God is everywhere. God fills the whole universe. Uh, he is not limited or bounded by space 
or bounded by time. Uh, God is omnipresent. God is immutable. So again, there's that word. It means unchanging. God doesn't change. It's a hard one, again, for us to, it's kind of a little bit like the eternality of God. So again, we're thinking, think of the word mutation. When something changes from one to another, God doesn't, God doesn't change. He's unchanging in character, nature, purposes. In fact, this is just, so this is logical. Think of it this way. If God is perfect at this very moment, then God cannot change because if he, he can't become more perfect, and if he changed, he would become less perfect, which would mean he was never perfect in the first place. God is unchanging. He cannot become any more or any less. Uh, God is independent. That, that, so again, that's very different from us. God is self-existent. He is the uncaused cause, as philosophers say. His being is grounded only in himself. He is the creator of everything that exists. We'll talk more about that next week. But again, a word that kind of encompasses all this. In fact, let me suggest a couple words. When we see the word almighty... Um, sometimes people see the word omnip omnipotence, which is fair. Uh, sometimes we use the word sovereign, right? That's a big word that for some people is super loaded when they, when they use the word sovereign. Sometimes people are barely listening to the sermon. The word sovereign comes up, they sit up straight, and they're ready for a fight, right? Because there's a lot of pushback on the idea of God being sovereign. And by the way, that shouldn't surprise us because that's what we do as humans. We love to push back on God. We're okay with a comfortable version of God, but a sovereign version of God... That's tough. People say this, if God is sovereign, if God does everything that God intends to do, that means I have no free will. If I have no free will, that means I'm a puppet. If I'm a puppet, what's the point of all this? Uh, Michael Horton says this in his book on the Apostles' Creed, and I thought he, he put it well. He said, God seems to think that it is enough for us to know that, notice these, these two ideas that are held at one time, that God is sovereign, all right, he's almighty, he's in charge, and that we are responsible. So somehow, both of these things somehow are true. Now, we don't understand how they're true, but they are. God always gets his way, but in such a manner that, notice, human agency is not undermined or destroyed. While Scripture does not seem to resolve this mystery, let's, let's face it, it's one of those things about Scripture. Again, how can, how can Jesus be 100% God and 100% man? How can the Trinity be three and one and one and three and one guy? Well, we don't know. And this is another one of those we have to take by faith. Scripture doesn't seem to resolve this mystery. Some theorists, here's what they do. Here's what we do in our humanness. We choose to reject one or the other. Either we reject the divine sovereignty of God or we reject human agency. But Horton goes on to say this option for either position is not available to us because that would be unbiblical. I like what, how, how Horton puts it later on. He says this, men treat sovereignty as a theme for controversy. You realize entire churches have split, denominations have divided over the topic of sovereignty. He says this, men treat God's sovereignty as a theme for controversy, but in the Bible, it is always a matter for worship. And that's a good thing for us to remember. We worship God the Father, Almighty. So I know I probably didn't just clear up everything for you when it comes to Almighty, but hopefully you've got a little bit pi uh, better picture. But on the other hand, we're told that God is intensely personal. So in the creed it says, I believe in God the Father, Almighty. Jesus referred to God as his Father. That was shocking to his contemporaries and even got him in trouble. In John 5 it says this, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this, this gets, uh, if, if almighty was difficult, it's really going to get fun now, okay, as we talk about God the Father. 
So think about this. We know that Jesus is eternal. We know that Jesus never had a beginning and Jesus was not created. He was not created. Again, you might remember back at the beginning of this series, we mentioned to you a survey that said that roughly 74, 76% of self-proclaimed evangelicals agreed with the statement that Jesus is God's first and, and best creation, which is heresy because God the Father did not create Jesus. Jesus is part of the Trinity and has always existed. And so God is not the father of Jesus in the way that we would typically think of a father. So what does it mean when it talks about God as a father? What does it mean? The Bible is full of what we would call analogies or anthropomorphisms. <laughs> That's a big word, which means that God is speaking in um, ways that humans can understand. One of the things we say about God is God is holy. And when you think about the holiness of God, you may think of the moral attributes of God, but it also means something else. The word holy literally means other. So when we talk about God as being holy, what we mean is God is so other than us, God is so different than us, that there is, there is nothing actually that we know of that perfectly compares to God. Nothing. So all we can do is approximate what God is like. And so the Bible is full of analogies. Think of the Bible this way. It is the self-revelation of God to us in ways we can understand. It is the revelation of a God who is um, nothing like anything we know. So it's put in terms that, you know, we can kind of understand as, as maybe theological kindergartners, right? So the Bible's full of analogies. The Bible says that God is like a shepherd. God is not a shepherd, but he's like a shepherd. Shepherds care for their sheep. They, they feed them. They take care of them. Um, God is like a shepherd, but he's not a shepherd. God is like a warrior, right? One who protects people, one who goes to battle, one who, who, who can win a battle. Uh, God is described as a rock. God is not a rock, but he's like a rock. We can hold on to him when storms come, and he's like an anchor to us. And these uh, analogies are easy for us to visualize, and they're easy for us to remember. And they all contain certain, what we might say, profound truths about God. And they get us thinking about God in various ways, and those, those are good for us. Now, when we say that God is a father, when we speak of God the Father, it's important for us to understand that that, too, is an analogy. So as I, as I talk about this, I, I want to, if you're feeling... Um, a little pushback on this. I'll just tell you this. I had a chance this week um, to kind of talk to, I talked to um, some heads of, uh, of theology at several different uh, Bible schools and seminaries. I talked to pastors that I know. And basically when I, I asked everyone this question, do you think that when we talk about God as a father, it's purely an analogy? And basically what I got was some people said absolutely 100% and some people were like, well, maybe and so this is a little bit difficult for us as we think about this, but I just want to suggest this. As we think about God the Father as an analogy, what we mean is this. In some ways, God is like a father, and in other ways, he is not like a father. So he cares for us like a human father cares for his children. A good father does. He provides for us the way a father provides for his children. He protects us. He, he exercises authority over us like a father does over their children. He knows us better than we know ourselves, right? Like for those of us who are fathers, there's certainly a sense in which we know things about our kids that our kids don't even know about themselves. And so again, this is a little bit of a reflection in us. A good father is willing to sacrifice for his kids. And all of these things are true when it comes to uh, our God, our Father, in our lives. But like all analogies, it breaks down at some point. 
So sometimes I have people say, it's, it's difficult for me to think of God as a father. It's hard. Um, maybe their earthly father was abusive. And so that makes this hard. Maybe their uh, earthly father was just outright wicked. Um, maybe he was overly controlling. And so people say that, that's how I think of God when I hear father, that's hard. Uh, maybe for some of you, your dad was like, just don't cause any trouble and we'll be okay. Or he was unpleasable and you're still trying to figure out how to, how to please him or get his approval. Maybe your father was just absent and right? he wasn't there. And you wrestle with the idea of father. I like the way one person put it. He said, at the very best, our fathers were imperfect, right? The very best father in the world is imperfect. And our, the best fathers, they do the best they can, but they're not God. And they're going to fail us at times. And, you know, they're going to give us some issues. Some of us have issues we got from our fathers. We're just not pleasable. And, you know, we couldn't please our fathers. And, and now they'll never please us. And, you know, just kind of, we carry it on. But our heavenly father is different. He is intensely personal. He loves us. He knows the truth about us. There's no secret that you have from God and you're afraid if he ever finds it out, then you're out. That's not the, not the case. He knows your failures. He, he has grace for you. He always does what is best for you. He's growing you. He invites you in to a relationship with you, with him. And it is God the Father who defines what a human father should be like and not the other way around. So we should never project our imperfect human fathers on God. If anything, we turn it around and we say that's what a human father should be like, although knowing they're, they're human and not perfect. Another objection you get sometimes is father feels awfully gender specific when we talk about God. And that would be fair. Uh, the early church fathers taught often that God is spirit and he is not male and he is not female. We talk about him as a he in the Bible, but we understand that, that God is spirit. He's not male, he's not female. But for the Christian, uh, Ben Myers puts it this way. The word father describes a relationship and nothing more. That's something you'd have to let sink in a little bit, isn't it? It's describing a relationship. It's describing how it is that we relate to God, how he invites us to relate to him. Now, in one sense, God is fatherly towards all of creation. Uh, Matthew 5.45 describes him this way, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heavens. Watch, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain, right, uh, on the just and on the unjust. And so we have a God who is fatherly towards all creation at the same time. Bible tells us that our sin has separated us from God. It had made us enemies of God. But Jesus came to invite us into a relationship with God through faith in him. It, we have the opportunity to become children of God. The biblical concept is that God adopts us into his family. In John 1.12 it tells us this, but to all who did receive him, Right? who believed in his name. This is what we've been talking about in the creed. He gave us the right to become children of God. In Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Notice, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters and by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And you may have heard that word, Abba, has the idea of, of daddy. And that's fair. That's, that's kind of what it's saying here. In other words, our God is not some distant, unknowable deity. He is our daddy. He's one who invites us in to have this intensely personal, intimate relationship with him. 
In fact, it's interesting, the disciples asked Jesus, hey, hey, teach us how to pray like you pray, right? You pray really well, and we'd like to know how to do that. So you remember he gives them what we call the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, and, and he says this. this. This is a good way to pray. Our, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus says, here's a great way to pray. When you pray, start by calling God your Father. Now, in the culture of Jesus' day, it was common for pagans to refer to their gods as, as father. Uh, so this is nothing new. As citizens of Rome considered Zeus to be their father, but he wasn't the kind of dad you wanted to go play with. You just didn't want to take him off because he always walked around with a lightning bolt ready to let you have it, right? But, but they, they considered him their, their father. But our God, notice, invites us to come to him as a father who cares about our needs. So come to him and pray to him and talk to him. He loves you. He wants to seek your good. And so Jesus says, pray to God. Talk to God. And when you do, by the way, call him your father. He says, our father in heaven. So again, God is transcendent. He, he is both here. He is, we use the word imminent. He is right here with you, but he's also transcendent. He is, he is in heaven. He fills every, every part of the universe. He's infinite. He exists beyond space and time and calendars. And then it says, pray, hallowed be your name. Hagiazo is the Greek word there. Again, that's the word I mentioned earlier. It's the word holy or completely other. God is completely other than us. Throughout human history, the name of God has been revered. So much so that at times, people wouldn't speak the name of God or, or write the name of God, they would have a code when they would write, so they wouldn't actually write down the name of God. There was this healthy fear associated with God the Father. Sometimes we talk about not profaning the name of God, and that's a really good word to use. When we think of profaning the name of God, we think of uh, using God's name as a cuss word, and you certainly shouldn't do that, but it's actually, it's more than that. The word profane can mean to make something common. So the idea here is don't make the name of God common. And I think that's a good way to put it because we have a father in heaven who is transcendent, omnipotent, omniscient, and immutable, all these things. He's almighty. So don't make his name common. Don't take his name lightly or irreverent. And then it says, when you're praying, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's talking about God's kingdom. You're inviting the Father. God, I believe that you are an intimate God, an almighty God who loves me. So I'm asking, bring your kingdom into my life. The idea is that the, right now in heaven, God's will is perfectly done. God rules and reigns. But there's a kingdom that is coming. And so we're inviting God. In fact, the Bible talks a little bit about that idea of the kingdom of God coming and eventually you know, taking over the whole earth. Like right now, Scripture says in Romans that cre all of creation groans for its redemption. Isn't that a great way to think about it? Like we groan for our redemption, we ache for it to be fully in God's presence, but so does all of creation. And so it kind of explains right now the earth is groaning, if you will. And we can think of things like, you know, it's groaning over global warming and, and there's disease and pandemics and extension of, extinction of species. There's deforestation we're worried about and there's pollution and there's uh, human conflict and war and abuse and injustice and partiality and racism and all of these things. It feels like our, our world is groaning all the time. But our Father is going to fix all of that. In fact, it's interesting when you read about the kingdom of God, how it's described. It's described this way in some terms like the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Right? There'll be peace even in the animal kingdom. Uh, the deserts will blossom with roses. 
right? That's, you gotta be pretty powerful to make that happen. That death will be undone. There'll be no death. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more disease. That's the, the power of our Father to bring his kingdom about. So we pray for that. Our intimate Father would bring that, that, that world into our life. He goes on. He says, as you pray, pray this way. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. He says, give us this day our daily bread. That's probably when we pray a lot. A loving father doesn't say yes to everything that their children ask of them. Right? We've, we talk about this a lot. They don't do that because oftentimes their children are immature and sometimes they ask for harmful things. Sometimes, as a father, the best thing you can do when your child makes a specific request of you is to say no. Right? Sometimes, as a father, we have to be willing to be the bad guy for a while and absorb the pouting and the attitude and the silent treatment because we love our kids too much to give them that, that thing they're asking for. When you think back, how many times have you asked God for something that in retrospect you realize would have destroyed you? I, I keep a prayer list. So I can look back over the years. I can look back over things that I pleaded and begged God to give me. And I look back down and I'm like, oh, thank God you didn't give me that. Right? How many times have we done that? Maybe it's for a relationship or a job or for some success or you know, to be popular with some group or an easy out. Our daily bread is not that God gives us everything we want. It's that God gives us everything we actually need. It's that we trust our Father to be so good that he will only give us what's best. And then he goes on, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Some translations use the word trespass or sin. So the idea simply is this, that all sin is first and foremost against God. When, whenever we sin, we often think that we sinned against a person, but we understand that first it's against God. We talked, I think back in fe uh, February, uh, I, I talked about 1 Corinthians 13. You might remember when I talked about like, so for instance, if you're jealous of somebody, you might, be, you might think, well, my sin is against them, but actually it's first and foremost against God. If you're jealous of what someone has and, and what you're really saying is, God, I don't think you're a very good God because you gave them something that they shouldn't have or that I should have. And, and so a lot of times we do this, but we understand that sin is always firm, first and foremost against God and then it bleeds over into our relationship. And here what it tells us is that our good, loving, heavenly Father can both forgive us of our sin and as he forgives us, then it helps bring restoration to our relationships. We'll talk more about that later on in the creed. And forgive us our debts. This is something that only God can do. Only a Savior can forgive us of our sin. And lead us not into temptation. In 1 Corinthians, it, says, it puts it this way, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Right, so we all struggle in different ways, but we all have a father who knows us well, who knows how we're wired. He knows what we struggle with. He knows where we're tempted to sin. And he loves us and he always gives us a door out. There's always a way out. We never have to give in to temptation and to sin. So I'm going to have to just cut out a whole bunch of the sermon right now because we are out of time. Um, but I want to just wrap it up by just mentioning a couple of practical things here. The first is this, that our God is an inviting God. Right, so maybe it's easy for you to think of God as powerful but not personal. So just, just consider for a moment that God has invited you in to a relationship where you can call him Father. Right? He invited you into that through faith. 
not, not through performance. He knows everything about you, right? He knows how you've sinned and how you failed and how you will fail, right? Sometimes with people, we're always afraid, aren't we? If they ever find out this thing about me or if I ever blow it in this way, then I know the relationship's off, but it's not that way with your father. He already knows all this about you. He still sent Jesus to save you. He loves you. He gives you the Holy Spirit. And he invites you to call on him as father, to, to come to him with your needs, to rely on his power. Secondly, our God is a uniting father. So we have a shared father. We all have the same spiritual father. I could go on. I'm out of time. I could go on and talk a little bit about that. But I would say this. We are, we are all very diverse. We are all very different. But the thing that unites us together is we have the same father. And that father has called on us to love one another the way that he has loved us. We'll talk about this in detail a little later in um, this series when we talk about uh, the Holy Catholic Universal Church and the communion of saints. But again, it's important for us to remember. I got to speak yesterday morning to a group of men from church and, and I told them, you know, I'll just give you a very simple message. It's the message in 1 John that it says that we receive from the beginning that we should love one another as God has loved us. Call it the communion of the saints. And the third thing is this, that God is a, he's our caring father. He cares deeply about us. I wonder how many of you would be uh, vulnerable enough to say, at some point this week, you were stressed out. Anybody? At some point this week, you were stressed out. How many of you are feeling stressed out right now because you should raise your hand, but you don't want to, right? Okay. How many, how many of you had, so here's, I'll put it another way. How many of you had someone come to you this week who was really stressed out asking for help? Okay. You're all looking at the person next to you. So think about this. If God is our Father Almighty, how should that impact the way we the way we counsel ourselves and, the, and each other. What does scripture say? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And what? And the peace of God. All right, we'll guard your hearts and we'll guard your minds in Christ Jesus. So I'll just close with this. Um, our, our daughter who lives in uh, Phoenix has been working, she's been down there for, I have lost track, uh, more years than she was allowed to go down for. Um, but she went down to get her bachelor's and then she got her master's and then she got a, a master's certificate and, and then she's done. And she wants to, she wanted to be a behavioral therapist. And part of what that required was 2,000 hours of um, supervised uh, work so it's taken her a long time to do that. And then she has to pass something um, uh, uh, so she could be a BCBA, which is a board certified behavioral analyst. So it's a, basically you get all your hours in, do all your work and file for it. And then you take this four hour test and uh, hopefully you pass it. So a couple weeks ago, she took that test and she called me on multiple occasions and said, dad, you know, just pray for me. This is really stressful. And it is, it's a lot of stuff to remember and a lot of stuff to do. And so I did, I would tell her, I'm praying for you every day, all day long. And I was, that's the truth. But let me tell you something I never told her. I never prayed that she'd pass the test. Because I don't actually know if that was the best thing for her. I mean, it was possible that maybe she shouldn't have passed it the first time. Right? I mean, as parents, we know sometimes we don't need success. We need a little humility. And so I didn't know, even as her father who knows her and loves her. But I know that she has a heavenly father who knows her even better. 
And I trust him even more than I trust myself. And so I never told her this. In fact, she's probably listening to the sermon and hearing this for the first time. So I never prayed that she'd pass the test. I prayed that, that her heavenly father would give her what was best for her. Now, thankfully, that was that she would pass the test. And she did. And I'm really excited for her with that. But I trust God that much. And, but, but here's what I told her. And this is kind of the takeaway. I told her at one point, I'm like, a, a couple days before the test, I said, honey, listen, I know you're really stressed. I, I know there's a lot on the line. I get all that. But here's the thing. Here's, here's 60 years of living what this has taught me, among other things, is that um, if you take the test on Wednesday and you pass, you're going to look back and go, I wish I just relaxed on Monday and Tuesday. I wish I had just enjoyed it because I passed the test. I wish I hadn't been all stressed and worried and had a stomachache and all that stuff. And had, I, I wish I, I should have just enjoyed it, right? Because I passed the test. I'm like, on the other hand, if you don't pass the test, you'll probably look back and go, I wish I had just enjoyed Monday and Tuesday because I'm not enjoying Wednesday. But I wish I had just enjoyed it. See, here's the thing. You can never go back and enjoy yesterday. You can, you can only enjoy the moment today. And you'll never enjoy the moment in the day until you really believe that God is both intimately personal. Nobody knows you and loves you more than God. Nobody. And he is absolutely powerful and can bring about every good thing in your life. That's why God can say this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Only an infinitely powerful and intensely personal father can make that promise. And that is the father that you have through faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and um, for all the stuff we didn't get to talk about. I thank you for the stuff we did that we can know for certain that we have a, a God who has invited us to call him Father. And so we do. We recognize you as, as Father, who, as one who wants us to relate to you as one would to a perfect father. And yet at the same time, you are almighty, all-powerful, and can bring about everything that you intend. And so, Father, now I pray that we would just simply believe that, trust that, that that would be good enough for us, that by faith we would truly believe that you are both our Father and you are almighty. And we can trust those two things together and know that we are in good hands of a perfect and loving God. And so today, Father, I pray that we can do that, that we can cast upon you our worries, our cares, our anxieties, our, you know, our failures, uh, to give to you our guilt, give to you our sin, and receive instead reconciliation, justification, the righteousness of Christ, all of our sins forgiven, and we find ourselves in the hands of a God that we can always trust at every moment, freeing us to enjoy the day that you have given to us. And so I pray as we walk from here, we will walk with both of those things in mind. You are infinitely powerful and you are intensely personal. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today and for that sprint. Uh, and may God bless you. Have a wonderful week out there, folks.